0: God speaks to us in His Word in Genesis 2 5 through 15. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed in his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put, the garden, and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. It's good to be with y'all. Um, I bring greetings from Frontline Edmund, which is your little sister congregation. Um, So I met some of y'all that are big brothers uh, in in the room this morning, and and that's who you guys are to us as a church in Edmond. You encourage us, you bless us, we learn a lot from you. And so it's been, I I don't know, I've lost track, I think it's been like five years since I've been able to be with y'all on a Sunday, and so I'm I'm excited to be with you. Let me pray for you, and uh, I want to invite you to pray for me, and then we'll continue in the series, Rhythms of Grace. So let's pray with one another, for one another. Father, I thank you for th- this moment. I thank you that I get to be with my friends here in Shawnee. And we thank you that we get to sing, like in all confidence, and all reality. And ask beautiful questions like, oh, death, where's your sting? Hell, where's your victory? And we remind ourselves as we sing over each other that, church, we can stand in the light because the truth is that our God, he's not dead. He is he's alive. And so just like the sun has shined through the clouds that covered this morning and light has broken forth on this city, that's a picture of the truth of what we remind ourselves this morning as we gather to celebrate that light has broken into our lives and the darkness of sin and shame has been burnt up by the glory of the grace of Jesus and so I thank you for this moment, and I pray simply, Holy Spirit, that you would help me serve and help my friends in this room. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. And God's people sit together, amen. So a little bit about me. I have four kids. My wife and I have been married 17 years, 18 in January. And so we've got four kids ranging from 12 to 3. And my 12-year-old daughter, she got to go to youth camp for the first time. Anybody in here go to Frontline Youth Camp? A few of you, yeah. So she was stoked, really excited about going to Frontline Youth Camp. Incredibly excited. Her excitement diminished just a little bit when she found out I was bringing the rest of our family to youth camp too, right? And so she was still excited, but it was it was fun to just be there. And you know, she would turn a corner with all of her junior high friends, and then we would be there at a greeter, you know, her. Her mom and dad and little brothers and sisters, We'd be like, you were great at volleyball, you know, have some water. And she would kind of appease us and, and did, her, did her best to not be too embarrassed. And we did our best to not embarrass her. But w- we got to participate just as a family and kind of hang out on the fridges. But youth camp every night, one of the things that we did this year was there was a party. And so there was this uh, themed party every night after the main session, and the kids would just get to celebrate each other and what God has done, and each had a theme. And I think the second night, the first night my family was there, the party that happened, it was a Western-themed party. It was a blast, mechanical bull and all. Line dancing, it was amazing, right? And, and so the dance floor was filled, but there was a moment in the night, like there are any times there's a dance floor, where there was just kind of a lull in the action, Right? And so the the dancing had gone on for a little bit, and the camp counselor, who was a DJ, did what every good DJ knows when there's a lull, right? If you're at a you're at a wedding, right, and it's kind of calming down, he's gonna break out, bust a move, or she's gonna, you know, something that's gonna bring us all back, something that we all enjoy. So there was this moment in this this dance party, this this line dance party, this this western this celebration theme at youth camp, where it was kind of just emptying out a little bit. There was And the camp counselor, being the good DJ she was, in wisdom, dropped the needle to this song. What freaked me out in that moment was every teenage girl ran back to the dance floor. I don't know if this song has had like a resurgence on TikTok or something or, or like just Generation Y has way better taste in music than I gave them credit for. But they knew every word to the song. It was amazing. Working nine to five, yeah, they got you where they want you. There's a better life, and you dream about it, don't you? It's a rich man's game, no matter what they call it. You spend your life putting money in his wallet. It's enough to drive you crazy if you let it. Now, Dolly Parton, as, as I said to some of you this morning, she's a national treasure, right? Like, we love Dolly. But this, this song resonates with us for deeper reasons, whether you're 40 like me or whether you're a 14 girl, evidently, like some girls at youth camp. Like, we love this song. Maybe if we can't even articulate it because it, it speaks to something that we can all relate to, that that we have a complex relationship with work. We have a broken relationship with work. Americans on average spend 90,000 hours working in our life, 3,750 days, over 10 years of our life on average at work, which begs the question, if we seek to follow Jesus as Christians, as followers of Jesus, how do we view work? What part does it play in our life? What role does it have? So, as we've been in this series over the summer, rhythms of grace, these regular occurrences, right? Rhythms, like as Laker played the drum, he hit beats regularly, right? That's what a, a rhythm is, and yet we're talking about these rhythms of grace, regular occurrences of grace, which is a free gift, an undeserved gift from God in our life. A moment of encountering the power and the presence and the formation of the living God. And some of those things that we've talked about, we've expected things like scripture study or gospel community or prayer, fasting. And yet, this morning, we're going to talk about work, and I've, I've read many books on spiritual disciplines. I've listened to people speak on spiritual disciplines. And yet, for whatever reason, work never makes that list where we talk about these rhythms of grace or things that are, are spiritual disciplines in our lives. But I think work is one of actually the most important ones, even though it's largely neglected. And when I say we're going to talk about work this morning, we're going to talk about the spiritual significance as followers of Jesus about work. I'm talking about all kinds of work. All kinds of work. If you're a college student, the work that you go about in your studies. If you own a coffee shop, the work that you go about owning your small business if you work on campus at OBU, the work that you go about being a, a resident advisor or a professor or, or if you work in energy, if you're a stay-at-home mom, all kinds of work, it's all included. And so to understand work as a rhythm of grace, as a spiritual discipline, I want us to see a few things this morning, but the first thing I want us to see is, is work is a gift from God. To to understand work as a spiritual discipline, we need to go back to the beginning and see work is a gift from God. Let's look together at some of the verses that we just read. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he he put the man whom he had formed. And skip down to verse 15 and look the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. To work it and to keep it. I want to ask you a question, and I want you to just pause and and really consider the first image that comes to your mind. What do you think of when you hear the word paradise? Paradise. What do you think of? What do you hold in your heart and in your mind when you think of paradise? I literally searched for paradise in the last few weeks on, online, right? I did an image search online for paradise, and I counted hundreds, really like a couple hundred images I went deep just to look at what came up. And there were all some version of some resort. Maybe we even have a picture, something that looks like a place that you would dream about going, an all-inclusive resort, When we think of paradise, if you're like me at least, we think of a place that that is conducive to getting away from work. Paradise, in our mind and our heart, often is incompatible with work. Our vision of paradise is a vacation from at least the, the inconvenience often, or at worst, the evil of work. And so naturally then, if that's what we think of when we think of paradise, we imagine as we read the creation account, and we read about God creating this paradise to to put our our first mom and dad, Adam and Eve, in, we imagine the Garden of Eden probably a lot like an all-inclusive resort. We imagine Adam holding a, a Mai Tai and Eve a mojito, and they're just chilling out on their hammocks, right? And they're going to get like a couple's massage from some angels later, and they're just like in this all-inclusive Resort of paradise that God has set for them up to experience for eternity. An eternal vacation minus work. But as we have a careful reading of the creation account, we see that's far from a biblical reality. There's a a biblical vision of work. In Genesis, God creates and he blesses humanity. And then he gives them this massive honor, this charge, this task of overseeing under his rule... The entire world. Adam and Eve are are charged with filling the earth with the glory of God, his beauty, his presence. And so they're taken to paradise, this garden in Eden, and yet in paradise in a place of perfection where they're living as God created them to live in perfect communion with him. It shouldn't escape us that then they are given work to do. God's job description for humanity in this moment is referred to as, by many theologians, the cultural mandate. Richard Pratt describes the work humans were were called by God to do, this cultural mandate, in his book, Designed for Dignity. He writes this, God ordained humanity to be the primary instrument by which his kingship will be realized on earth. The great king has summoned each of us into his throne room. Take this portion of my kingdom, he says. I'm making you my steward over your office or your workbench or your kitchen stove. Put your heart into mastering this part of my world. Get it in order. Unearth its treasures. Do all you can with it. Then everyone will see what a glorious king I am. That's why we get up every morning to go to work We don't labor simply to survive. Insects do that. Our work is an honor, a privilege, commission from our great king. God has given each of us a portion of his kingdom to explore and to develop to its fullness. So, what... Pratt is helping us see here is the reality that that work is a good gift from God. It's not a necessary evil as we often view it. It's actually an essential good. God, God called people to work even in paradise. Paradise perfection is not absence of work, but it is present in the gift of work that's given to us by God. Work preceded sin entering the world. So that means that's good news. Just one implication for us then is here we are, gathered in this beautiful building, doing beautiful sacred things like singing together, praying together, looking at God's word together, and we view that as as sacred, and yet we're going to be tempted when we get up tomorrow morning and we go about some Monday morning work as viewing that as, as absent of anything sacred, as as secular, but, but this scripture, if we understand it correctly, it's going to lay waste to that divide that God intended our work itself to be sacred and spiritual and not something that is compartmentalized from him but something that he wants to enter into and saturate. Nancy Percy in her book Total Truth explains a Christian view of work well. She says, the ideal human existence is not eternal leisure or an endless vacation or even a monastic retreat into prayer and meditation but creative effort expended for the glory of God and for the benefit of others. Our calling is not just to go to heaven, but also to cultivate the earth. Not just to save souls, but also serve God through our work. For God himself is engaged not only in the work of salvation, but also in the work of preserving and developing his creation. When we obey the cultural mandate, remember God's job description, to go about filling the earth with his glory, we we participate in the work of God himself. And so there's an invitation there for us, a charge for us then to not just view prayer as something sacred, not just community or church gathered or, or, or scripture study as something sacred or even rest, which we're going to get to as something sacred, but work, even and especially work, as something sacred. But if that's true, just to put it bluntly, why is work so difficult? Why is it so hard? If, if work is a gift from heaven, then if we're honest, why so often does work feel like hell? What happened? That's the second thing that we need to, we need to see, that work was wrecked by sin. Work was a gift from God, one, but two, work was wrecked by sin. Instead of embracing God's rule and and his design, Adam and Eve reject God's rule and establish themselves as their own authority. So when that fruit is taken and that, that, that bite takes place, what's happening on the surface isn't nearly as important as what's happening deep down in the souls of Adam and Eve and they're making a decision to say, hey, God, you don't know best. We know best. God, you don't have wisdom. God, we have wisdom. God, you're not ultimate authority. God, we are ultimate authority. And that is a picture of sin. That's the essence of sin, rejecting God's rule to give our lives up to the rule of other things or self-rule. And to run from the very creator and author of life then makes perfect sense that we would run towards death. We would be c- cut off from the source of life. That's why the wages of our sin is death. And this leads to chaos and destruction, not just on a soul level for Adam and Eve, but it has ramifications for the call of work from God. Look at Genesis three seventeen. And to Adam, he, God said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I have commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you were dust. And to dust you shall return. Sin wrecks our relationship with work. And this was the decision that's walked out by our, our original mom and dad, Adam and Eve, and yet we have all done that too, right? We have all stepped away, run away from God's rule and said, hey, I know best, I have ultimate authority, I have greater wisdom, and our work is wrecked when we do that as well. Instead of worshiping God, then as our king, we worship his creation. And, and instead of work just being a charge, then work becomes a God itself, we don't believe God's good design, that work is a gift, but we look at, look at it as an evil. And our work is cut off from God, and as a result, it's cursed. And we see in Genesis, and we experience it in our own life, no matter the work we go about, that it, it can feel painful and fruitless and filled with thorns and thistles and marred by toil. So what, what does this look like? Well, two ways, I think, in life we experience work being wrecked by sin. And the first is, I think, when, when work seems like everything, when we believe work is everything, that's a result of work being marred and wrecked by sin. When work is our, our king, when work is our identity, when work is our salvation, our peace, our significance, our ultimate security, when we build the house of our lives on our work, that's because work has been wrecked by sin. So, That can result in us viewing ourselves or or those we work with as little more than productivity machines. We view human value and dignity and worth directly tied to what we do or what somebody else does. I had a high school reunion recently, and There's that question, 20 years, when you're reuniting with these people, and and they ask, you know, they know who you are, they know where you're from. And so the natural question when you're reconnecting is like, hey, what do you do? And that can be coming from a really sweet place of, of getting to know you better. But don't you sense often when somebody asks you that, that there's just like a wave of judgment coming? What do you do because I need to to value you based on this answer? Do you do something that stacks up to, to my measure of human worth? When our identity and value is tied to the answer, to the question, what do you do? That's a result of work being wrecked by sin. When we view work as everything a big way work is wrecked by sin. One of the fruits of that is that we overwork. We sinfully overwork. This has historically been a problem for me personally. As I've been sitting in this these last few weeks, I've been continually convicted and thinking back and really mourning and lamenting of seasons in my life where I missed out on things that I, not, I, I shouldn't have because I was sinfully overworking because I had my house built on thinking work was everything, even a good and high calling of being in ministry, like that can become something that's wrecked by sin, that good work, because I have a distorted view of what it means for my identity. The Japanese have a word called kuroshi, which literally means death by overwork. And yet, statistically, Americans work more hours than anyone else in the world. We work 137 hours more than the Japanese, 260 more hours than the British, 499 more hours a year than the French. Insert your own French joke there, right? She's <laughs> your own adventure. The 40-hour the work week is, is m- like by 2022, literally a thing of the past for most of us, over 85% of Americans work over 45 hours regularly a week. These could be signs of, of overwork, which is a result of our work being wrecked by sin. And yet, on, on the other side of that ugly coin, we can experience our work being wrecked by sin, not because we believe work is everything, but because we view work as evil. When we view work as evil, it means that we view work as just a means to an end or an obstacle to avoid as much as possible. We tolerate the the minimum amount of work and try to have this equation in our mind then where we we work as little as possible as a result where we can just try to experience a maximum amount of pleasure away from work. So this is finding our identity not in productivity but in pleasure, in comfort, in consumption. And work is only there for the purpose of making money which is there to to get experiences and comfort and products and the things that will make us happy. I have a vivid memory of something that happened well over ten years ago. Of sitting with a man in my life, who had who had just um, rejected a promotion. And he was explaining why he didn't want to take that promotion. And we were ironically at his lake house, a little trailer by a lake. And he was pounding his, he was getting more upset, more emphatic as he was explaining his reasoning. And he was pounding his fist on a picnic table saying, everyone I work with, my boss, they live to work. And I merely work to live. You guys ever heard anybody say that or maybe yourself express that sentiment? And I understand part of what he's trying to to convey there. He's saying, hey, I don't work where work is everything to me. But what he's saying at the same time is work is actually evil when I was digging down into the meaning of what he was trying to express. It's a necessary evil that I just need to to kind of tolerate to get to the good point in life. If, If I only work to live, implicitly in that message is when we're at work, real life can't happen, right? When we view work as evil... Just like when we view it as everything, we overwork. When we view work as evil, one of the ramifications and fruit of that is that we can underwork. According to a recent survey and data released from a Gallup poll, only 13% of employees are engaged in their jobs. And engaged means invested in their work. They're making effort and having a focus of helping their organization organization improve. Only 13% of employees, according to Gallup right now, are engaged in their jobs. They go on to say 63% are not engaged, which means they're simply unmotivated and not likely to exert any extra effort. A lot of like, well, that's not my job, or I don't have to do that. That's the mass majority of employees. And they go on to say 24, just under one out of four employees are actively disengaged, meaning they're truly unhappy at work and intentionally unproductive. I read this article. In a, in a magazine The Atlantic recently that uh, is an older article. It's about 10 years old, but it describes this, this um, story where there was a, a civil servant, a man that worked for a small town in Germany called Menden, and he wrote this farewell email, this retirement email to his fellow employees at the city department that he worked in. And he, he essentially said in the email, hey, I haven't actually done a day's worth of work in 14 years, so I'm well prepared for retirement. Adieu, I'm out. And this made like national news and the mayor of that town had to have press conferences and it kind of created a big hubbub, especially in Germany. But his experience, I think, is actually not that unique. That same article, which is entitled Not Working at Work, says that the average American employee right now spends an hour and a half to three hours focusing on personal activities while they're at work, not on not focusing on their job. And one artifact they give for that is that the majority of personal purchases made on Amazon happen between the hours of nine and five. Why is that the case, right? Well, well honestly, because work is, is hard and work is wrecked by sin. So we attempt to avoid the pain that comes along with work through sometimes a posture of just trying to disengage your carelessness or escapism because we could feel like work is a necessary evil work is is wrecked by sin when we make it everything it's wrecked by sin when we believe it's it's a ultimate curse and not a gift and so we respond to that through weird things like overworking or underworking or maybe just some of us if you're like me it's a struggle of some weird mix depending on the day or even the moment of the day And, and you just approach work in a way where you're trying to go about it and grinding it out but But you have a question as you go about something that, again, we, on average, are going to spend 90,000 hours of our life at. And the question is, hey, what does my relationship with Jesus mean for this? How does God feel about this? What does it mean for this part of my life to be submitted to the lordship of my king? Well, that leads us to the final thing that we need to see. Thirdly, that work is redeemed in Jesus. Flip to the New Testament if you have your Bible and look at Galatians chapter three. Galatians chapter three. This is Paul writing to the early church and he's gonna tell us some beautiful things about who Jesus is and what that means for our work. Picking up in verse 13, Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So remember, we went back to the beginning and, and looked at God's good gift of work, but how that was marred by sin, and Paul's holding up Jesus and saying, hey, here's good news. Here's reason to hope. Here's ultimate reality that Jesus is the second Adam. He's the perfect image bearer of God. He is the ultimate human, and he lived perfectly for us, and that includes the way that we approach work, that, that God's only son, Jesus Christ, the only perfect person, he he. If we look, we see that he perfectly modeled what it means to know and obey God. And that, was, that w- was not exclusive of what it means to work. It included a view of work that's not unspiritual or unimportant. But we see a Savior who goes about working hard for the glory of his Father. That Jesus' whole life we can see that he works, he gets his hands dirty. He was a hard-working man in construction who never did poor work. Dorothy Sayers, in her book, Why Work?, she writes this about Jesus and his worth work ethic. Look, she says, no crooked table legs or ill-fitting drawers ever, dare I swear, came out of the carpenter shop at Nazareth. Nor, if they did, could anyone believe that they were made by the same hand that made heaven and earth? earth. Jesus taught us how to live and work in a way that the heavenly father intended. And and most importantly and beautifully and ultimately, he died to pay the price for our sin. But that includes the sin that, that, that stains our work and our relationship to work. He redeemed us from the curse of sin. And so he saturates our past and everything that we've done he takes care of. He gives us hope for our future and beautifully. And what we forget sometimes is that also means the good news of the gospel has everything to do with our lives today. The gospel is good news for a mundane Monday morning when we go about work once again. And the kingship of Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus means everything for those moments. Jesus redeems our work with spiritual significance and meaning. Look at what Paul writes to another church. Colossians chapter 3. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. A few verses later, Paul digs down even deeper. He says, Whatever you do, work heartily. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Listen to these six words. You are serving the Lord Christ. So, you might own your own business and think, I work for myself. I don't have a boss. Paul's going to say, actually, you do. <laughs> you might have an a organizational chart on the place you work, and you have a boss on paper. But Paul's going to say, hey, actually, there's a boss above that boss. You have a, a lowercase b boss, but you also have a, an, an uppercase b boss, and, and he created all things and runs all things, and ultimately you work for him. You might have a job description, but And underneath that job description, there's a far richer purpose. Paul's saying, hey, there's a purpose for your work that's far deeper than just what's on the job description that was handed to you or that's a part of your annual review. And Jesus is behind the purpose of these things and over the call to do these things. And so if if we're to believe what Paul is saying here, that when we go about our work, we work heartily since we're serving the Lord Jesus, how would embracing that reality of experiencing work as a a rhythm of grace change our perception of what we do for our work, even if we don't love our job? I have my dream job, and 40% of the time, it's really hard. I dream about like opening a donut shop or something, right? And some of us don't have our dream job, and it seems extra hard. Listen to what Martin Luther said. One of the the beautiful things about the revival that took place, which was the Reformation, and that's what it was, a revival, one of the the most significant revival in church history up to this point. That that 500 years ago, one of the beautiful things that God did to revive the church and, and some of the revival that was happening was actually capturing a vision again for Christ's view of work and the, the sacredness of it. And there isn't this silly divide between if you work at a church or you're a missionary, that, that matters, but if you're a shoemaker or a carpenter, that doesn't. Listen to what Luther says. What would you do if Christ himself with all the angels were visibly to descend and command you in your home to sweep your house and wash the pans and kettles? How happy you would feel and would not know how to act for joy. Not for this, the work's sake, but that you knew that thereby you were serving him who is greater than heaven and earth. What you do in your house is worth As much if you do it up in heaven for our Lord, we should accustom ourselves to think of our position and work as sacred and well-pleasing to God. Not on account of the position and work, but on account of the word and faith from which the obedience and the work flow. Luther's super smart, right? I'm sure that sounded even better in German. But but what he's saying is that, look, whatever you go about, even just going about your chores in the house, that can be done with furious joy and furious significance, not because of the task alone, but, but for the glory of whom you are going about that task, which is the Savior of the universe. There is no thing that is too small that he doesn't mark as significant and that he doesn't want to saturate for his glory. So how do we practically go about that? What does that look like? Well, here's some rapid-fire things, biblically, that that Scripture tells us. How can work be worship? How can work be a rhythm of grace? Well, work is worship when we work with a view towards pleasing God, not men. That's what we just saw in Colossians chapter 3. Work is worship when we work with a view of, of ultimately working for the glory of Jesus. Work is worship when we're honest Even when it is a cost to us or it it prevents us from getting credit for that project or forsaking a promotion or getting ahead. Work is worship when we go about work in honesty. We see that in Psalm 15 and Genesis 39. Work is worship when we honor our bosses and superiors and submit to their authority. Paul wrote that to to Pastor Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, and again talks about it in Romans 13. So when you go about being honorable to your boss, that's worship. Work is worship when we treat our coworkers with neighborly love, the people that we work alongside, that we shine the light of love in in Christ into the darkness of their lives with kindness and respect. We see that in the Sermon of the Mount and in Luke and in Romans 12 as well. How about this? This is beautiful. Work is worship when we fight for an honest and ethical workplace. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 5. When you go about fighting for what's right at work, for fairness and justice, that's worship. Work is worship when we approach our work prayerfully. This struck me with great conviction in, in some of the things that are involved in my life. When I go about my domestic duties or when I'm leading my children into doing the things that they're called to do or if I'm connecting with my friends about their jobs, man, I pray that I'm going to grow in the worship of Jesus by approaching those things prayerfully. Paul talks about that in 1 Thessalonians 5. Work is worship when we avoid complaining or grumbling, even in hard-working situations. It's Philippians 2. Work is worship when we refuse to make work and money our idols. Again, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, and also the wisdom in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, 10-12. through 12. Work is worship when we live simply and give generously. 1 Timothy 6, Proverbs 22 and finally, and there's more than this, but finally for us this morning, work is worship when we trust God enough to rest from work and practice Sabbath delight. So where can we go from here? How can we respond? Well, if you're here this morning and you're just here to explore the claims of Christianity and and. or or maybe back to church for the first time in a long time, or you're just here because you want to learn more about the claims of of who Jesus is, I I hope you heard good news that is, hey, work isn't evil and work isn't everything. But more importantly, I hope you heard the good news that, that you are invited to know a Savior who loves you so thoroughly through and through that there is nothing that you can go about in your life that he doesn't care about. Everything about you matters to him. Everything about you matters to him. The things that you think no one cares about, the things that you don't even care about, he cares about because he thoroughly cares for you. He wants to be the Lord of your entire life. That includes work. He doesn't want work to be something that's miserable for you or something that you build your whole life on. He loves you thoroughly. And so the invitation is, in response to that love, believe in him today. Find true significance, true peace, true purpose, true forgiveness, and put your your faith in him. For followers of Jesus today, We just have some simple responses, which is embrace working well as a rhythm of grace. Reject a view of work as everything. Reject a view of of work as evil, but embrace a view of work as worship and something that we can meet Christ in and be formed by Christ in. And that... That means that we also embrace work as waiting. And so I want to make sure we're doing that in an honest way. And I want to let my friend, Pastor Bob Thune, give us some final instructions on how to do that. Listen to what Pastor Bob says. He says, Don't expect life at work to be peachy. (laughs) We all know the way too happy Christians who go to work thinking that since they love Jesus, everything's going to work out. It's not. You might miss your quota, you might lose a client, you might get fired. You might have conflict with your boss or your coworkers. These things don't mean that Jesus doesn't love you or that God is punishing you. Rather, they're the inevitable result of living in a fallen world. Remember thorns and thistles. He's calling us back to Genesis 3. Work is cursed. Work is affected by the fall. Work doesn't always work the way it should. So have a massively God-sized view of the holiness of work, be realistic about the fall, too. And Pastor Bob finally says, Jesus hasn't come back yet. So there's going to be these moments where work is, is really especially hard, and we're invited to in those moments. Remember that that there is a day coming, the day coming, where Jesus is going to come back and make all things new, and there will still be work to do. There will be an adventure, a charge, a call from the Lord to go about work, but that work will not be cursed by sin. It will be perfect, and we can pray for that day. On a, on a hard lull of a Wednesday when you go about work, maybe the best thing to do is to stop and remember that we're waiting for Jesus to come back and say, Come, Lord Jesus. And then finally, if you're a follower of Jesus, one of the things that we do and we respond to this is we embrace resting well as a rhythm of grace. And that means come back next week. That's what y'all are going to talk about next week. Brian Chapel, in his book that came out this month, Grace at Work, he says, God can do more with our lives in six days than we can do in seven days of nonstop labor. That's true, and that's next week. So you got to come back. You can't really grasp work as a rhythm of grace unless you understand rest as a rhythm of grace. So let's stand and pray. Father, I thank you for my dear friends. And we just remember that your care and concerns have no bounds for us. And we want to know you more deeply and be formed into your image in a, in a greater degree. And so we pray that you would even now, as we go about meditating on your word and responding in faith and coming to the table, that you would, Spirit, speak to us. We know you are, but you would help us hear ways in which that we are called to go about our work as worship. And a place that you long to meet us.
0: Jesus, we pray this in your name. God's people said,